Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Neil Garfield here, and this is for 7th, 2017. Today we honor all those who fought in World War II, just as we should honor them on every day, this being the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack and the start of World War II for the United States. Tonight we talk about the single basic question about virtually all foreclosures. And that basic question is, are all or most foreclosures simply fake and fraudulent? This is a preview of the seminar we're hosting on Monday. Um, If you have questions, just follow the instructions you received when you called in and you'll appear on the dashboard and we'll try to connect with you. Uh, questions will be answered in the order they come in. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, and Charles Marshall, my co-host, is broadcasting from San Diego, California, uh, which is apparently, from what I saw in the news, experiencing some uh, problems with fires and smoke. Well, not San Diego, but LA very much so. Yes, Los Angeles is engulfed in uh, a lot of big fire issues right now. Fortunately, San Diego is not impacted. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that won't happen, but for right now, it's okay. Well, that's good. To, that's good to hear. They reported it inaccurately here. This show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. Uh, with offices in Florida, and this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number and not the number to call into this show, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Tia? Hi. This is is Tia Anderson, the project director for Lending Wise. Today is the last day to sign up for the reduced price of $109 to attend the Garfield Continuum entitled Death of a Salesman, when the party who originated an apparent loan transaction is dead or bankrupt. 
After midnight today, the price will increase to $129. The seminar will be held by phone this upcoming Monday, December 11th, 2017 at 4 p.m. Eastern, and it will run approximately 90 minutes. The seminar includes a PowerPoint presentation that will be sent by email prior to the seminar. Attendees will also receive an audio recording of the seminar after the seminar concludes. Attorneys will receive two CLE credits, and a transcript of the seminar will be available upon request to seminar attendees for the additional cost of $25. During the seminar, foreclosure expert and attorney Neil Garfield will discuss what happens when the loan originator no longer exists. The strategy seminar will cover the best way to attack mortgage liens, notes, assignments, power of attorneys, and endorsements from servicers who claim to have a lasting durable power of attorney from an originator, but were the originator or alleged initial lender went out of business in bankruptcy or had another legal death years before. Again, please visit us at livinglife.wordpress.com to register for the Death of the Salesman Seminar to be held this Monday, December 11th at 4 p.m. Eastern. Register today to reduce to receive the reduced price of $109 and let us know if you're interested in purchasing the transcript too. If you have additional questions, please email us at info at lindylife.com. Back to you, Neil. Thank you, TL. I just want to clear up the issue about the CLE credits. We applied late. It's pending. That doesn't mean you can't claim it, though. Uh, most states will allow you to claim it, and, I, and we probably will get the authorization I always have. Um, so we come down to earth and simply address the uh, main issue, uh, which is phantom collectors of phantom debt. We know now that the banks funded themselves instead of the trusts, which never really existed. They took the money from investors put it in their own pockets, and never put it into a trust or in trust for the investors. We know that the banks covered up their theft of investor money by originating or buying loans with investor money and not trust money. By doing that, the ownership of the loan, or at least the loan paper, went to entities controlled by the banks or to the banks themselves. We know that the theft has been the subject of settlements in which the owner of the debt, the investors, is paid off with cash and resecuritization in which actual loans are sold, in quotes, into the new trust like Zuni, uh, for example, by a party who still doesn't own them. We know that the proceeds of judicial and non-judicial sale does not go to investors, but back to the underwriters of non-existent worthless certificates issued by non-existent trusts that are registered nowhere and unfunded. We know that the underwriter acts as master servicer for the phantom trust and collects servicer advances that were neither advances nor from the servicer, but rather a return of investor capital, even if it was other investors. We know that the trustee of the trust is not a trustee either in writing nor in practice. 
and we know that the banks are acting on their own behalf and not on behalf of the investors or the trusts. <coughs> is it possible that the central question, <coughs> excuse me, is to whom does the so-called servicer send money? Joining us tonight is Bill Tablo, um, a uh, licensed investigator and a co-blogger and a very good forensic analyst, as well as Charles Marshall. Thank you guys for coming on again. My, my pleasure, Neil. Yes. Always good to be on, Neil. Charles, the banks have succeeded in deflecting all questions about where the money goes after the servicer collects payments or proceeds of a foreclosure sale. And we see a hide-in-plain-sight strategy where the servicer is changed after the loan is declared in default and therefore has no payments to forward to any alleged principal or debt owner. Then you see again a change of servicers during or immediately following the foreclosure sale. Those two strategies make it possible for the current so-called servicer to honestly say we have no payments to forward because we haven't received any. So there's nobody to disclose. I have a few ideas about approaching that, one of which is to argue to the judge that the servicer has represented that it is serving the trust. The discovery question of who receives payment on the subject loan from payments or from proceeds would be a relevant inquiry to, comprove, to confirm or disprove that basic assertion by the servicer. But that probably needs to be done by subpoena and not by discovery because the last so-called servicer would not be a party to the litigation, although maybe it should be. What comments do you have on this, Charles? Um, I think you're right that the change of servicers at the time just prior to initiating even the initial notice of default, oftentimes if it's round two or three with additional notices of default, the notice of trustee sales sometimes will essentially create uh, a new arena where either a new sales trustee will bring in, will be brought in, and sometimes if, if, the, uh, if the current servicer has been dealing with a difficult borrower for a period of years particularly, which is not, not that uncommon in California. It's, it's uncommon generally, and it's even uncommon in California, but not that uncommon. Then you'll even see changes then. But, yes, it's, it's, it's essentially a way of laundering the paper trail so that it becomes very difficult to confirm where the money went from the, the origination of the so-called loan. 
Yeah. I didn't realize I was on mute. Um, I, I think that there's a a basic uh, uh, issue with this in that I have this in my imagination probably well I have heard of uh, of meetings but in my, in my imagination I imagine a meeting of lawyers who are anticipating all of the basic strategies tactics motions discovery and so forth that homeowners could raise and in advance of that they have planned out a series of events that will make it more difficult, A, to understand it, and B, to uh, uh, for lawyers or pro se litigants to get the information that they need in order to establish an actual uh, defense. So... Um, I see signs of this, well, I've seen signs of this uh, for 11 years now. Uh, back in uh, 2007 and 2008 when I was helping people uh, more out west than out east, um, if I put in a request, you know, a qualified written request um, on behalf of somebody, which... I was doing in large volume because I was trying to gather data. Uh, we discovered an interesting dichotomy. Those people for whom we sent the, the request who were current and not in foreclosure either didn't get a response or they got a response letter without any documentation. But those people who were in foreclosure or rapidly approaching it, the response included a letter and all the documents that they were relying upon for foreclosure. And it was based on that that I concluded that the documents were being fabricated at the time that the decision was made to attempt foreclosure on a homeowner. And looking further into it, I discovered that the uh, signatures on the documents were either outright forgeries or that they were being signed by low-level people who were being given titles like assistant secretary um, and um, right after that, leading into our topic, um, uh, somebody uh, went further and realized that these people were signing thousands of documents uh, per week um, or even per day, uh, and the signatures were being stamped on documents, and somebody dubbed that robo-signing. So you've got these documents of a, uh, of a transaction that never occurred, 
and what they were doing was fabricating and forging them. Now we have um, strong evidence, Bloomberg published on it this morning, that the activities of the banks have in fact resulted in the creation of an industry of fraud where people who have nothing to do with finance or loans or whatever merely create an entity and buy lists of uh, people who uh, may or may not be in debt or may have or may have not been in debt and it doesn't make any difference to them uh, what the situation actually is. They focus on uh, disadvantaged or minority or anybody who's not sophisticated and when they call up and say you owe money most people tell them to go pound salt but a large enough fraction of people are in fact paying money to these people and so they're called phantom collectors of phantom debt because the existence of the debt is irrelevant to their collection efforts and now all all that does to me is expose uh, the fact that that is a business model that is merely mirroring the so-called remit trusts and the whole mortgage foreclosure marketplace. And Bill, you've done some work, uh, a lot of work on this. Um, uh, where you've uncovered as much as you can. Um, have you ever found a situation where there was an assertion of securitization that would mean that somebody uh, is designated a the name of a trust? Uh, have you ever found in one of the situations that you have examined any evidence to indicate that the trust itself was funded or that the debt that they are supposedly foreclosing on was ever purchased? No, uh, not at all. I've never had any, any evidence to confirm any of that. Um, I have never seen any certificate holder. Uh, they claim uh, are holding these, these debts, uh, the identity of who's holding those as certificate holders. Never seen any of it. It's all smoke and mirrors. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, people out there now uh, going after and collecting these debts that aren't entitled to it, it's I, what I've been seeing in some cases now, and it, bring, it uh, brings to mind I have a client where uh, you were mentioning earlier uh, a situation of not non-default, and the client uh, submitted a QWR 
to the servicer at the time, which was Aurora. And I had checked in. He came to me and says, listen, I, I know there's a lot of bad stuff going out there. Will you look into this for me? I'm not in default. I'm paying my bills. I don't have any issues, but I want to know if there's anything going on. And I had identified the debt inside a Lehman Trust. And so I instructed the client to send off a QWR and specifically ask about all the transfers and all that uh, of, of his note and any assignments that may exist or whatnot. Well, Aurora came back and, and emphatically stated through a law firm that the deed of trust in the note had never been assigned or transferred to any party since, since origination. And the originator... Uh, by my records, had gone out of business and was dissolved in California in 2009. And so repeatedly they came back and said, listen, I don't know what you're after here. You don't have a problem. You're paying your bills. I don't know why you're asking these questions, but I'm going to tell you again and again and again, your loan has never been assigned or transferred to any party, and it never will be unless there's a default. All right? So that was very telling because as I start looking at more and more cases of people coming to me who are not in default, um, I'm finding out and learning through my research that they are inadvertently paying the wrong parties um, who are sitting back and collecting this money every month. And I'm finding that these loans that were pledged to XYZ trusts are being sold, uh, and the collateral files are being sold in bulk note sales outside of the purview of this, you know, whatever trust that they claim held the debt to begin with. So there's a lot of shenanigans. I'm also seeing a new fact pattern of fraud that's really disturbing. And I'm finding these attorney and fact documents um, are being executed by agents of agents of agents, where uh, you'll see layered up uh, signing an assignment or an endorsement as attorney in fact for another attorney in fact for another attorney in fact. And those documents sometimes that they're referencing, I'm now discovering, I'm going and calling the counties and running those reference documents, and I'm getting feedback from the counties saying, we have no record of those power of attorneys. They don't exist. In fact, the numbers that they're citing don't even jibe with our systems. Now, a lot of these are coming from bulk sales out of the GSEs and HUD. I've put in calls to HUD specifically for the parties who have executed these documents, and I'm not getting any return calls. No one's answering any of these questions. I'm saying, listen, I'm holding a power of attorney signed and notarized by you or by HUD or whomever, and I'm finding out that these powers and these things in here are not legitimate what do you have to say and no one's no one's responded yet yeah well they're not going to because the power of attorney is basically being used as a substitute for assignments of mortgage and the reason uh is that the power of attorney is not typically recorded. And so they can change the power of attorney right up until the day of trial unless you've obtained the copy that they're relying on uh, through discovery beforehand. Uh, 
the uh, uh, and the act of layering, uh, as you and I say it, Goldman Sachs calls it laddering, um, is intentional to confuse whoever it is that's bothering them. So what you have, and this is typically something that lawyers don't look at that closely. So they got away with a lot for a long time. So you'll see in the signature thing, it'll say up top uh, the name of a corporation or whatever, and then um, sometimes that's there, sometimes it's not. And then below that, it'll say Bank of America as successor to LaSalle Bank as trustee for the XYZ Trust by Chase Bank as attorney in fact for, and sometimes it'll be one of the entities that I just mentioned, and sometimes it'll be a brand new entity. And if you miss that, then you miss an opportunity to bring that to the court's attention. Because if one party is saying they're an attorney, in fact, then where's the power of attorney? And you see that on assignments, what they're doing is they're pushing out uh, time and space between the people who are actually ordering all this, which are basically all the, the major investment houses, um, who nobody is suing yet, but I might be changing that, um, who, are, who are the ones, they're not the real party in interest, they're, they're the real thief in interest. And they're, they're pulling the strings on these puppets um, to create uh, whatever result that they want. And here's the thing, and why what people need to realize, especially when they're trying to settle or modify whatever, it doesn't really matter whether they succeed all the time. They're going to succeed 95% of the time because 95% of the time nobody contests the foreclosure. That's a mistake. You're giving away equity and a potential cause of action for wrongful foreclosure and a variety of other things. So you come down to 5%. Out of that 5%, only, two and a, only half of those actually fully litigate the case and out of those, um, uh, the 2.5% that's left, two-thirds of them um, um, are, are settling with a modification that grants virtually no relief. And only 1% uh, is litigated to conclusion, and out of that 1%, maybe 50% of those 
the ones who litigate to conclusion, only uh, only 50% of those, a half percent of the overall, actually win their case, and those are silenced by settlement offerings uh, as part of a confidential uh, settlement that prevents the homeowner or the attorneys or anybody else involved from talking about the existence of the settlement, much less the terms of it. So if you look at that, even if they paid a million dollars, which they don't, to everybody who was able to show in court that they didn't have legal standing, or if you want, in layman's term, they didn't have a leg to stand on, they have already won 99.5% of all the other cases. The only, the the evaluation, and, and uh, Charles, you always talk about this for settlement, that normally you look at what the case, what, what, what a jury or trier of fact would end up doing, and what's the value of that. The banks don't look at it that way. The banks look at it as, is this a threat to thousands of other cases if it becomes known? Or is it not? If they don't think it is, then they offer very little. If they see it as a threat to hundreds or thousands of other cases because you've proven that U.S. Bank does not act as a trustee, it's not authorized as a trustee, would be for the elements of a trustee, and that the trust that it supposedly is a trustee for doesn't exist. If that were to be shown that could affect thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of cases. That case would be a high-value case to the bank, even though the homeowner and the homeowner's attorney is looking at it from the ground up as just, you know, well, the mortgage is only $300,000, uh, you know, they're they're offering a 50% reduction and they're going to waive all the arrearages now, you know, and they're chipping in another 50000 for fees. Why shouldn't we settle? Well, you can. But if you don't, the settlement will in all probability be much higher if it's under the circumstances I just described. Because the worst thing in the world for them is for you to go to judgment and uh, and then sue them for wrongful foreclosure because in the judgment would say they had no right to foreclose. And well, you know, Neil, to to kind of show you as 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 proof of what they're willing to do to hide and conceal and cover up. I'm uh, this past week. I'm hap- I happen to be looking at a detailed itemized uh, bill for a case uh, prepared by Chase's counsel 
to defend a simple action where the homeowner was challenging U.S. Bank's authority as trustee and the ownership of the loan. And that detailed invoice is very interesting. It's over $450,000 and 1,224 hours spent strategizing by line item detail over what they're going to do uh, about the endorsement of Cynthia Riley, about the investor codes that are being pushed, um, how they're how they're going to get around these obstacles. I mean, clearly, if you take, you know, cumulatively, uh, the lead attorney on the case had 628 billable hours into the case, and I equate that to almost four months of full-time work at 40 hours a week on that lead attorney alone. Clearly, they know they have problems. And I find it hard to believe that the investors, if they did exist in these trusts, that they, if they knew or they're willing to authorize that kind of expenditure instead of negotiating with the borrower if there's an issue. I mean, this it's very telling when you look at this, and I'll probably do an article and point out some of the uh, things in this itemized uh, statement of uh, fees. I also found it very alarming when I saw that they were spending time doing deep dives, what they call it, on the judge, and then they were having strategized phone calls over what to do with the information they got back on the judge. It's just very, very disturbing stuff. Yeah, and I have to. Yeah, yeah, I have to say, Bill, one of the reasons that that type of billing happens is when the attorney firm behind that, and often they will be prompted by their client director, whether it's the servicer, whether it's the nominal trust, they'll be directing them to basically, it's kind of ironic, because in a sense they're kind of running up attorney fees, but they're doing that in anticipation of of filing an attorney fees motion. And if they think that they're on top of the case and that they're getting procedurally... uh, advantageous rulings, then sometimes they will actually run up attorney fees so they can dump that on to their ultimate uh, attorney fee award demand that they'll put in, you know, if and when they get a judgment. I mean, I don't normally see that kind of run up unless and until a judgment is near or, or likely to be near. And I think the other caveat there is if if they get a judgment, they'll often, I think, recreate the record because they've got software that allows them to go in and move all kinds of numbers around for representing what the attorney fees are. It's just another area where I think there are a lot of shenanigans and a lot of uh, funny numbers and a lot of manipulating, including some of it at the last minute. I think you're right. But I think what Bill was describing was the method by which they cover up the bonuses to the law firm for taking risks where lawyer is not supposed to suborn perjury or anything like that. These lawyers are right on the edge. And so what Bill is describing is basically uh, piling up fees uh, into the millions on one case. That's how they cover up the fact that they got a bonus um, 
for risk-taking. And uh, it's interesting that Bill actually found that in, in one case. I knew it was going on. I had never seen the... Uh, uh, um, the, the details on that. In fact, Bill, if you would send that to me, I'd appreciate it. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go, I want it way. <laughs> and before we go, Bill, you sent me a tax case this morning. And I want to point out to everybody that if you're looking for authority, on what these trusts really are and what the certificates really are and what a certificate holder really means, look to the tax decisions dealing with the REMIC provisions of the Internal Revenue Code. Now, this case that Bill sent me pointed out, as I have pointed out repeatedly, that you don't know what's in those certificates because it varies from so-called trust to so-called trust, etc. But the vast majority of them don't convey any interest in the mortgage or the note or the debt or anything. It's just a blanket, unsecured promise from a trust that probably never existed to pay money based on a schedule that's contained in the pooling and servicing agreement. And what they're doing is U.S. Bank and others are coming into court saying they are trustee for the holders of the XYZ certificates. Well, those certificates, if, if that's what they're saying, it's automatically subject to discovery. You can ask for them. And they're going to say, no, 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 you can't have it. They came in saying that they are in there as trustees for the certificate holders. We need to see the certificates. And when you see the certificates, you'll see that in probably 80% of all certificates issued, which were never really issued, they're just zeros and ones in a computer, you'll see that the the wording that is um, uh, linked to the so-called certificate conveys only a blank promise to pay from the trust only and gives the owner of the certificate absolutely no right to recover from a homeowner nor any right to enforce the note nor any right to enforce the mortgage. So if U.S. Bank is coming in and saying we're foreclosing on behalf of the certificate holders, you've got a slam dunk on legal standing because the certificate holders have no interest in the note or mortgage, even by their own evidence. Now, they do that because they don't, they're trying to get away from, from saying that they're representing trusts. 
because they know that everybody's on to the fact that the trusts are unfunded. So it's an interesting situation where you have, in the style of the case and in the introduction of the case, it says U.S. Bank or Bank of America, whatever, as trustee for the certificate holders. And sometimes it just says these certificates, <coughs> which is another standing question. Those cases, in, in those cases, there is no plaintiff. The certificate, the certificate holders may exist, but they have no interest in the note, mortgage, or debt. And U.S. Bank is not really a trustee anyway and is not bringing the action. It's the lawyers who are working at the direction of the servicer like Aquin. But in fact, they're ultimately serving the interests of the so-called master servicer, which is going to be Wells Fargo Bank or one of the other major banks. <clears throat> so there's a, a point out there where you need to be alert and to bring that point home when you go to court. Charles, you have any last words on that? Um, yes. I mean, on the certificate holder situation, this is, I would say, even across the country from, from the extent that I followed pleadings around the country, which I have done, you know, not at the, the highest level, but a pretty good level. And especially in California, you know, where I know the, the litigation environment intimately, uh, this is unplanned territory. And this would get judges to, I think, take a fresh look at these types of cases. And the, the pleading would have to be narrowly tailored and, and, you know, fairly detailed, even at the beginning. However, if it's, if it's centered around the certificate holders as being a critical ingredient to exposing the chain of title breaks and to essentially exposing that no real money was loaned and therefore there's no underlying debt associated with these types of transactions. Uh, the upshot of course, is that that can only be gleaned through discovery and discovery is, is the only vehicle, but it's also a good vehicle for getting to this. And it would involve depositions even down the road related to the certificate holders. In some cases, I think cases like that could get traction because they will be very much outside the box of what's being done. But I, I do too. And, you know, people say, you know, how do you prove all this? And the answer is you don't prove what you think happened without, well, not having any evidence. The answer is that you reveal the gaps in what is being assumed about the foreclosing party. So I want to thank Charles for joining in as co-host and Bill for joining in as our guest. And you'll hear from them probably next week. And I'll be back. Um, thank you all for joining us. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.